Welcome to The Curiosity of A Child Episode 13 Yeah So how are you Anton? I'm fine Good What have you been up to since last time we recorded? I have been playing some really good board games I have So have I We've been playing some really good board yeah. games you mean Such as Gloomhaven Yeah, fantastic We're excited for Frosthaven as well Yes um, Seventh Continent Which yeah. we got into Brilliant adventure Bit too much haunting though So we're going to house rule that a little bit But yeah. I, I, I've been loving that The most recent game that we've been playing Is Stuffed Fables It's really really nice But it does get quite dark Sometimes as well I've also been doing some modelling And some painting of my 172nd scale Modelling as in painting no, no, no. Making some plastic tanks, mostly. Um, in fact, since we last recorded, which was a very long time yeah, ago... Yeah, sorry. I have painted in an entire army as well. We might take a picture of that and put it in the um, show notes. Yeah, we could do that, yep. Yep. Complete with uh, grass and their helmets. <laughs> yeah. And lastly, I have been doing some of my schoolwork. Yes, it's been funny, hasn't it? Homeschooling for a couple of weeks. It's Easter holidays now, um, so I was working from home and uh, trying to keep you educated at the same time. So what was one of the topics that you were given? We had to find out about some Easter traditions. So did you go for um, the usual Christian traditions? or I went from where they came from and some other slightly strange um, traditions as well. Okay, sounds good. So you're kind of pre-Christian um, traditions and things from around the world. Yeah. Also, unfortunately, no one's listening from school and I really want them to. So please, everyone at school, please listen to the podcast. Well, if they listen to this, they'll know that they have to listen. Yeah. That, and tell other people that you know to listen to the curiosity of a child. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's also been great weather. So we've been out and about quite a bit, haven't we? In the yeah. garden, we planted some lettuce and some carrots and things. So we will survive the isolation on those. Yeah. Um, and went for some good walks, obviously away from other people. But it's, it's been really, really good weather, actually, hasn't it? Yeah. We also have a special guest this time. Mummy's joining us, isn't she? And she's going to talk about some of the traditions that um, she knows from East Appy, coming from Russia. Yeah. Then for my feature... I am going to be looking at the number 13. The unlucky number. That's right, as it's our 13th episode. So, shall we get on with the show? On with the show. For my um, feature, we've got a very special guest. Hello, I'm a very special guest in Amantan's Mummy. <laughs> Yeah, we've got Curious Mummy in the studio today. We have. Very exciting. For my feature, I've got a few different things. I'm going to speak about the pagan roots of Easter and some strange traditions. The Sibylle cult flourished on Vatican Hill. Sibylle's lover, Attis, was born on a virgin, died and was reborn annually. This spring festival began as a day of blood on Black Friday, rising to a crescendo after three days in rejoicing um, the resurrection. There were lots of fights over God being real or not on Vatican Hill. Pagans versus Jesus worshippers. So eventually Christianity came to an accommodation with the pagan spring festival. Okay, so it seems there then that um, that idea of the resurrection 
of Jesus at Easter time that was taken from the pagan festival, was it, where they had a similar belief before that? Yeah, because they, they pretty much stole it and changed it how they wanted it. Yeah, so I think if you're trying to mix cultures, then you, can, you share things from each culture, don't you? Yeah. The date of Easter is not fixed, but instead is governed by the phases of the moon. How pagan is that? All the fun things about Easter are pagan. Bunnies are left over from the pagan festival of Eostra, a great northern goddess whose symbol was a rabbit or hare. Exchange of eggs is an ancient custom celebrated by many cultures. Hot cross buns are very ancient too. In the Old Testament, we see Israelites baking sweet buns for an idol and religious leaders trying to put a stop to it. Eventually, they gave up and blessed them instead. Yes, I think, Natasha, you've got something about some sweet buns. Yes, it's a, a traditional uh, Easter bread uh, we bake in Russia. These are some other stories. The Sumerian goddess Inanna, or Ishtar, was hung on a stake and was subsequently resurrected and ascended from the underworld. One of the oldest resurrection myths is the Egyptian Horus, born on 25th of December, which is Christmas, Christmas and us, yeah. uh, when Christ was born. Horus and his damaged eye became symbols of life and rebirth. Mithras was born on Christmas Day and his followers celebrated the spring equinox. Even as late as 400 CE, the Sol Invictus associated with Mithras. He was the last great pagan cult the church had to overcome. Dionysus was a divine child resurrected by his grandmother. Dionysus also brought his mother Semele back to life. Yes, that's really interesting. So you can see some really um, familiar stories there. Yeah. <laughs> um, next up, Easter traditions from around the world, starting off with a Greek tradition. The Greek Orthodox Easter is called Pascha. It's the most important feast for the Greeks, celebrating the suffering and martyrdom of Jesus Christ, as well as his resurrection and the chance of rebirth for mankind, symbolised by the coming of spring. Throughout the country, many traditions such as special evening services take place during Holy Week. That starts with Palmer Sunday and ends with Easter Sunday. Four of those seven days form the main celebration. The first day is called Great Thursday, Megalipempty. This is the day of prep and eggs are dyed red to represent the blood of Christ. Is that the same? In Russia, you dye the eggs and then you smash the tips. Yes, it is similar because Greek and uh, Russians, we follow the Orthodox, I would say, branch of religion, is it? Yeah, Orthodox Christian. Yeah, yeah. Orthodox Christian. So our um, uh, celebrations are very similar and happens probably in the same time. So would have you dyed the eggs red then and did you use the onions? Yeah, we would use uh, onion skins, uh, for sure. Uh, some people, obviously, the simple way would be uh, to use onion skins. And um, 
uh, we would start collecting the well I would start collecting the onion skins uh, like a month before yeah. Easter yeah uh, some people get really inventive and um, make the um, um, eggs look even more beautiful uh, decorating them with um, flowers so you take a raw egg uh, I mean, a raw egg with a shell in a shell, <laughs> not boiled. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then you put flowers on top and then you wrap it uh, either in all tights or wrap it in, with a little uh, cotton string or whatever t- to make the uh, flowers stay. And then you boil it uh, as you would normally do in onion skins, but you have to have a lot of and uh, you will see the beautiful pattern. Obviously, the, that area where the flower was uh, stuck, yeah. uh, it, oh, will, so it will really remain. Tight, yes, it has yeah. to be really tight. It will remain um, uncolored, but everything else would be dyed. So that's why you will see that Eastern Europeans and uh, Russians we make our eggs um, look very pretty. But mm-hmm. I mean, uh, everybody, everybody seems to be. <clears throat> make it more beautiful but uh, apart from uh, onion skins you can use uh, people use like red cabbage all the other uh, types of um, natural dyeing, natural coloring mm-hmm. a lot of people started to use uh, food uh, coloring um, i thought that's cheating <laughs> yeah but it makes all pretty but people yeah. use for example uh, in my family um and Anton's cousins, they quite often would uh, dye the eggs uh, very, very red. Do you remember? Yeah. When we when we were there for Easter in Russia. Yeah, I remember um, we were smashing the eggs together. Or we weren't smashing, we were sort of tapping and seeing when it would break. And I remember, I think you won as well. <laughs> well, yeah, I've got I a lost, few years I of lost, experience I lost, smashing eggs. I lost on my um, first round, unfortunately. <laughs> I have got a bit of a technique, I must admit. Um, <laughs> just smash it. But do you remember what the eggs looked like? They were bright. Well, they weren't bright red, they were just sort of a very... They looked like they were painted with lots and lots of paint. They were very red. And then they had mm. the gold sort of... Um, slightly sparkly things. Yeah, there were stickers. So that's what I was trying to say, is that people uh, colour the eggs, uh, dye the eggs right red, uh, right red, <laughs> right, right red. And um, uh, they uh, use uh, various stickers to, to decorate them. So that's another way of uh, decorating eggs. I mean, it's very, very open to imagination. Yeah. Now, let's, where was I? Day two. Day two is Great Friday, Megali Paraskevi. This is the funeral procession of Christ, represented by a coffin. As the coffin is carried through the streets of Greece, um, church bells ring mournfully. Great Saturday is the end of Lent and the resurrection are celebrated on midnight. All people go, if it's celebrated on midnight, would that be midnight of like day two or great Saturday. I imagine that would be Saturday night going into the Sunday, I would have thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. All people um, go to church before midnight, keeping their special candles called lamb or lambades for the eternal flame. A few moments before midnight, the lights are switched off everywhere. The highlight of the Easter celebrations is 
during anesthesia. As when the clock strikes 12, the priest announces Christoph Anesti, um, Christ is risen. And people start um, greeting each other while many fireworks, crackers are set off. Also, shotguns start firing to announce the happy moment. They've got to land somewhere. And, uh, uh, well, you know there's that Greek tradition of smashing plates at a restaurant? Mm -hmm. So maybe um, they just like lots of smashing things, so they use the shotguns too, as well yeah. as the firecrackers. I think, and... I think Russia have a slightly safer way of smashing eggs. <laughs> yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah eggs, eggs is a peaceful way. The Great Saturday Dinner takes place after midnight, and comes... Is that the Great Sunday Dinner then? Yeah, or breakfast. <laughs> yeah takes place after midnight and consists of the traditional margarita made by the offal of the lamb and the cracking sigrisma of the red eggs. The final day is Easter Sunday. Kiriaki tu Pashka. I think we had Pashka at the beginning. Easter is Greece's favourite day of the year. Due to the great Mediterranean weather, families, relatives and friends ga gather before noon, mainly in the countryside to prepare the festive Easter Sunday meal. A whole... the second one? <laughs> a whole lamb is roasted on a cooking fire for many hours. It's eaten with sides such as tzalki, um, roasted potatoes, Greek salad and plenty of wine, uzzle and raki. Then they all sit around a long table for a long lunch, drinking, singing and dancing until late at night. Mm, that, that's, I guess the um, table is, you can pack the table away. Because <laughs> it's going to be a massive table because you get yeah. everyone there. What I find interesting there is, obviously being British, we see pre-Christmas as our main celebration. And we don't, at least because I'm not personally religious, I don't, really celebrate Easter that much other than getting chocolate eggs and you forget that in other countries actually like today or next Sunday um, just like the Orthodox Easter is going to be their most important day isn't it that's going to be their big family celebration now I've got a few other stranger um, traditions Starting off with the Russian, Polish and American, Easter Butterland tradition likely comes from Central and Eastern Europe and when Catholic immigrants from the area began making their way to America, they brought the tradition with them. Indeed, many families who claim this ancestry still call the Butterland by its Polish name. Baronek Wilkanokny. Yeah. Good effort. <laughs> so what is that then? A block of butter sculpted into a lamb. Ah, I didn't know that. Really? Well, we don't, Well, I might have missed something, but uh, I haven't seen it in my life. The next tradition is from Finland and Russia. Mixing religious references and spring customs, Easter in Finland consists of young children dressing up as witches to celebrate the festive season. Mm putting on brightly coloured clothing and adding freckles to their faces with makeup. Their children take to the streets, knocking on doors and handing out coloured feathers and crepe paper. These gifts are meant to keep away evil spirits 
and in return, the recipients give out treats, not unlike our traditional Halloween. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Sounds just like Halloween. Yeah. The next one is from Papua New Guinea. This is quite a funny one, this one. With an annual coastal temperature of 28 degrees Celsius and high humidity, there aren't many people in the country of Papua New Guinea that are interested in eating chocolate during the Easter period. Instead, the locals have come up with an arguably better idea. Trees outside houses of worship are decorated with packets of tobacco and cigarettes, which are given to the congregation after Easter services. The practice apparently has a very positive effect on the attendance of the church. And what did you say when we spoke about this earlier? I'm trying to remember, but I was thinking just now, I think it's aimed more at the adults than the children. Yeah, that's what you said. (laughs) Okay. The final one is from Norway. Norway is one country that takes their murder mystery seriously. So seriously, in fact, that for the entire week of Easter, um, everything shuts down so that they can devote all their time to watching or reading crime shows and books. The week is then spent working out who done it. It's become such a tradition that even television stations in the country switch up their schedule to only broadcast murder mystery shows. <laughs> And in our previous episode, we were speaking about um, coronavirus, and mm-hmm. I was just thinking about it because when when you've got like Easter time off, um, obviously more people are getting time off now because you have to stay at home. But in Norway, they'll be doing two things: one, watching or reading crime shows or books, and two, listening to the brilliant podcast, The Curiosity of a Child. Oh yeah. <laughs> I wonder if we've got any Norwegian listeners. If we do, please get in touch on Twitter. At CurieChildPod. So, do you have anything else to add? Any other traditions? Guest. <laughs> Feeling very special. Um, I have heard you pronounce the word Easter in um, Greek as well as Russian, but actually you say pas... Uh, what did you say? I said Pascha. Pascha. But uh, it's actually Pascha. Also, um, Pascha is the name for a dish which is specifically uh, made for Easter. It did sound a little bit like a dish. I was wondering, when I did my research, I was wondering, um, it sounded like pasta, so I thought it was a dish. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. And uh, it is made of um, it's curd cheese so in Russian it would be dvorak uh, don't ask me for exact recipe because <laughs> I don't know but I have um, I have seen them I have eaten them and it usually is uh, it goes by as a complimentary uh, with this sweet bread you have got mm-hmm. uh, sweet bread which is called kulich uh, in Russia um, but you have got a similar version, which is hot cross buns. Yeah. So it, it's very similar to panettone in Ooh, Italy. Oh, nice. Yes. I love panettone. Or uh, brioche mm-hmm. um, in France. It's a very traditional um, uh, bread, which is uh, baked particularly for... It's Easter, East bread, um, baked particularly for Pascha. So Easter, uh, it has got a particular shape as well. It's um, baked in cylindrical tins, 
Um, it's quite a, tall, though, isn't it? Yeah, to represent cylindrical, like a round. Mm-hmm. Round, okay. Round oh, yeah, and like cylinder. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And um, it's to represent the shape of the church. Okay. And at the top is uh, glazed with sugar glaze. Mm-hmm. And quite often... Like an onion will... dome. Yeah. <laughs> um, and quite often on the top you will see two letters. Letter H, um, which is which looks like uh, X, mm-hmm. and letter V, which looks like a capital B. A capital B. That's right. Well done. You know, you know your um, Russian alphabet, Cyrillic. Yeah. Um, and they stand for Christ has risen, which in Russian would be Christos Vaskries. And this is a very traditional greeting uh, in Russia. So when you see people, especially by the church, because uh, we, uh, we take uh, kulich, pascha, together with the eggs, to the church to be blessed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> don't, and don't they reply, um, indeed he has? Yes, well done, yes. Uh, exactly that. So, and to be honest, in my mind, I, I know it might be a little bit of um, traditional to my uh, <laughs> family, to my mind. It's almost like a little competition to say Christos Vaskries, which is the Christ is like the a... reason. And then to reply, Vaistino uh, Vaskries. Uh, Indeed, he has. So um, it's a very common greeting. It's like to say hello, mm. but during the Easter time, which I personally really love. It's like um, a special Easter language. It really. is like a, yeah. a special yeah. Easter language. Um, what else? Uh, obviously, you guys know that Orthodox uh, Easter is a few days or a week uh, later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's to do with calendars because, um, yeah, uh, I mean, Gregorian calendar yeah, and the Julian, Julian cal- calendar. Yeah. Um, so, Orthodox Easter will be next week uh, for, well, for, for me, for, for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and. More eggs. <laughs> yes, <laughs> more eggs. Talking about Actually, eggs. Unfortunately, not many people are getting eggs because you can't really go to the shops too often. No. Due to coronavirus. <laughs> Yeah, but um, I don't know whether you know uh, about Russian royal family, the last Russian royal family, who were unfortunately all assassinated during the revolution or after the mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember reading. 1917? Yeah, 1917, and um, um, that was very tragic. But what I was trying to say is that Russian royal family, they started to commission Easter eggs from um, House of Fabergé. Gustav Fabergé, uh, he was a merchant, and in 1842 he has opened his small jewellery shop in uh, St. Petersburg. And um, he obviously has been making beautiful jewellery and, and, mm-hmm. and etc. And then his son, Karl Fabergé, has taken over the business and uh, the link between the Russian royal family and the House of Fabergé is that the Tsar in, I think it was 18... Bear with me a second. Yes, 1885, uh, the first Fabergé egg was commissioned for Tsarina Maria Fyodorovna 
by her husband, Alexander III, and it was an egg, and then inside that egg was a golden egg, uh, and inside the golden egg was a hen, and it is called a hen egg. And that was uh, Zarina's childhood memory of Easter, and she has obviously described it to her husband, and he has um, asked uh, House of Fabergé to produce uh, a beautiful nice. uh, egg, mm-hmm. uh, or obviously golden egg, and made out. Yeah. And see, ever since every year, royal family would commission an egg, and then the whole um, the freedom was given to uh, Fabergé House uh, to, you know. Uh, to, to make eggs beautiful, but the only uh, condition royal family has imposed on the uh, uh, Easter eggs is that they would all have some kind of secret or mm. uh, like a surprise. So yeah, when some, you open them. yeah, when you open them. So some check in the box. Yeah. Yes. Especially in your smarties, the other one. Are they? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, so some eggs has have had like a little pendant or. Uh, watch or um, I don't know, a little frame with a photograph or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, during the First World War, no eggs were commissioned uh, for a couple of years, but afterwards there were a few more eggs until the royal family um, obviously has been assassinated and um, unfortunately uh, House of Fabergé didn't have uh, more royal commissions. They, mm. they have had other commissions, but um, um, I don't remember exactly, but I think there are about 90 or so eggs were uh, produced, not only for the royal family, other other people. Yeah. But uh, that's uh, a very a very interesting egg to receive. I think that House of Fab... Well, obviously, House of Fabergé, this is like... <laughs> I'm honestly not on commission of House of Fabergé. I just, I just really love... Yeah, they're <laughs> I love amazing. the beauty. Yes, yeah, I love the beauty and the detail of the uh, eggs. And that's very, very close to my home, St. Petersburg as well. So it's just... I can talk forever about it. <laughs> but um, I know now that the House of Fabergé, they do still produce uh, beautiful jewellery as well as Easter eggs. Mm-hmm. Uh, a majority of them are in a smaller form, which is like a little pendant. And I have heard that um, in some families, the girls receive a small, like a little pendant or uh, what are they called? Charms. Like a little charm in the shape of egg every Easter. So by the time they're about 20, they have accumulated uh, a few charms on their chain, which would look like... Um, necklace m- more than just a pendant so um i've heard of a daisy chain but i've never heard of an egg chain <laughs> yes egg chain would be amazing so that that's a beautiful tradition to have so uh if any of you out there have got um daughters then consider that as a as a tradition yeah i think it's quite a nice one because we um so going back to some of the earlier traditions then are they still strong in russia or would you say that younger people aren't following them so much, or has there been any change? I think that the uh, tradition of celebrating Easter as well as Christmas uh, and uh, church um, uh, celebrations are returning. Obviously, mm-hmm. after 70 years of Cold War, uh, all of those 
Oh, in tradition. communist times, you didn't really, it wasn't, yeah. it was outlawed, wasn't it, really? Uh, in a way. Yes, and not also all of these uh, traditions, um, they were suppressed. So mm-hmm. they are coming back. A lot of people are definitely um, starting to celebrate Christmas as well as Easter, mm-hmm. as they would celebrate New Year's Day or the yeah. night of the uh, um, New Year, um, which, is, which is beautiful to see. People make a lot of effort, they decorate houses decorate eggs and um, mm-hmm. make efforts and uh, making food and the table and yeah you know it's returning to the family you know get gathering together um, that's that's a beautiful tradition to have yeah I think it's good that these uh, things still survive she sometimes hear about kind of a westernization or Americanization of certain cultures uh, but it's good to that people still keep their strong traditions, I think, isn't it? Yes. Okay, I think that'll probably do us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, really interesting, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you like the Faber eggs and things, the traditions? Yeah, I'm sure your future will be interesting too. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we're not what going to um, crack the eggs. <laughs> Fabergé eggs are definitely not for cracking. No way. It's <laughs> great they survived, actually. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine them going missing during uh, after oh. the revolution. Some have, haven't they? But there's still a lot of them are luckily uh, intact. intact or safe somewhere. A lot of them are in private collections. And in Russia, the, in St. Petersburg, there is a, um, a museum, which at the moment, actually, they are showing virtual tours of um, their expositions. And We're linked to um, that then. Yeah. 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 Uh, it's beautiful, beautiful. So, thank you very much. That's very interesting. That's been good, hasn't it, Anton? Yeah. Actually having some proper first-hand accounts there. So, it carried on from the traditions that you had been looking at, and then Mummy had lots more, didn't she? Mm-hmm. Pleasure. I uh, enjoyed sharing the the knowledge and the culture. Yeah, we've well, finally been able to get you on. Yes. Well. Yes, I hope to be part of it more often. Yeah, we have to definitely uh, get you on again. So, thank you very much. number 13. Now I've got a little confession to make. This isn't really our 13th episode, it's actually our 14th one, as we had our two-part Halloween special. Now this was actually planned um, because I wanted to trick fate to ensure that this episode runs smoothly. So thanks for listening. Another good show, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, that was really interesting. Yes, I Goodbye. Bye. No, not really. Nothing's gone wrong. Don't worry. We're still with you now. So why is 13 seen as unlucky? What did the seemingly innocent number do to deserve its reputation? So, Anton, do you think it's unlucky? Um, yeah, because everyone else thinks thinks it's unlucky. So I've just sort of been thinking that it's unlucky as well. Yeah, it seems to be in sort of Western culture, it's got this unfortunate reputation, doesn't it? And did you know there's an actual phobia of the number 13? Wow. <laughs> yeah, and it's called, I'm going to try and pronounce this, Triscadiketophobia. I don't think it could be a natural fear, could it? It must be just created through cultural ideas and beliefs. I don't think somebody's born fearing the number 13, do you? No. Do you have any ideas where this kind of belief came from? Um, maybe it's because... It's the age when you become a teenager. <laughs> Could be, actually. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that one when I was doing my research. 
The number 13 is seen as unlucky by cultures around the world, so there are probably several origins to its belief. One possible and maybe fairly common origin uh, comes from cultures using a lunar solar calendar. So that's where they use the sun and the moon for their calendar. And there's about 12.4 cycles of the moon every year. So that means that the 13th one gets cut short. And throughout history, many people around the globe have had sophisticated and accurate um, like calendars and measurements of time and the position of the stars and the sun and the moon up in the sky. Uh, so you could understand why that maybe that 13th moon cycle that never quite finished could be seen as bad luck. Yeah. Because the moon was like really important to some of these old cultures. Um, and there's also maybe some um, theories that there are old like lunar worshipping cults. And um, when they started to be replaced by um, other religions or beliefs, um, perhaps some of that distrust of them continued into modern times. But it doesn't really necessarily explain why we think it's bad luck, though, does it? No. Keeping our Easter theme going, in Western or Christian cultures, the distrust of 13 may have come from the story of the Last Supper. This was Jesus's last meal, which he had with his apostles before he was crucified. Mm -hmm. And how many apostles did he have? 13? No, 12. <laughs> I was going to say 12. 12. But then with him at the table as well, that was 13 people together, wasn't it? Then it said that Judas, who betrayed Jesus, was the last person to take his seat at the table. I personally think Jesus should have stayed standing and let's guess sit down first. Yeah. I mean, son of God, he should have better manners than that. I know. At least if everyone now worships you, give them a good influence. Exactly. So the idea that 13 people sitting down together for dinner, being unlucky, possibly became popular during the 1800s, as these quotes tell. So this one's from 1823. I have known, and now know, persons in gentle life who did, and do not, sit down to the table unmoved with 12 others. Our notion is that one of the 13 so partaking will die ere the expiry of the year. So they believed that somebody would die if 13 people sat down together around a dinner table. Yeah, it's like musical chairs, race to the chair. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and another quote here from 1839. The old story runs that the last individual of the 13 who takes a seat has the greatest chance of being the doomed one. <laughs> or maybe it was the first person, as this quote from 1883 says. Everyone knows that to sit down 13 at a table is a most unlucky omen, sure to be followed by the death of one of the party within a year. Some say, however, that the evil will only befall the first who leaves the table, or may be averted if the whole company are careful to rise from their seats at the same moment. Ah, oh, we played a game at school where mm. everyone had to um, stand up at the same time, but then we had to look around and if someone was just not concentrating. Okay, yeah. <laughs> You would, you would lose. They would be the doomed one! Yeah. I kind of imagine people sitting at the tables in the 1800s with 11 guests around them, so 12 all together, and sweating on the arrival of one more person, really hoping nobody else turns up yeah. and kind of dooms them all, or one of them. Hoping they died at the last 13 people. <laughs> yeah. Even just sharing a room with 12 other people could be a problem, as this quote from 1711 mentions. On a sudden, an old woman unluckily observed there were 13 of us in company. This remark struck panic and terror into several who were present. But a friend of mine, taking notice that one of our female companions was big with child, affirmed there were 14 in the room. 
So that's lucky, isn't it? Yeah. Having a pregnant person, otherwise one of them would have been doomed. <laughs> okay, there's other possible origins. So this one comes from 1307. And have you heard of the Knights Templar? And I've got their cross here, which you might recognise. I sort of recognise the cross, but I haven't heard of the Knights Templar before. Yeah, where do you recognise it from? Um, it looks a little bit like the English flag. It does, and what about from Crusaders? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so the Templars, they were an incredibly powerful and rich Catholic military order with thousands of members. They had a network of castles all across Europe, and they were also really important in the um, early foundations of banking and things across the continent. So you could go to them, um, give them your money, and they'd give you kind of a note, and you could travel somewhere far away, give that note to another member of the order, and then reclaim your money. So that way you're not walking with your wealth. Um, so it's a good way of people keeping their money safe. So they would lend money and protect pilgrims on journeys to the Holy Land. And they were also, like I said, really important in the Crusades. Now their wealth and power grew so great that even kings would borrow money from them. Now Philip IV of France was in a lot of debt to the Templars, um, because he'd been borrowing lots of money to fight the English. And to try and get out of having to uh, repay them, he decided that maybe he could spread some negative rumours about them. And as Catherine Kurtz states in her book, Tales of the Knights of the Templar, this was a major event. On Friday, October 13th, 1307, a day so infamous that Friday the 13th would become a synonym for ill fortune, officers of King Philip IV of France carried out mass arrests in a well-coordinated dawn raid that left several thousand Templars, knights, sergeants, priests and several brethren in chains, charged with heresy, blasphemy, various obscenities and homosexual practices. None of these charges were ever proven, even in France, and the order was found innocent elsewhere. But in the seven years following the arrests, hundreds of Templars suffered excruciating tortures intended to force confessions, and more than a hundred died under torture or were executed by burning at the stake. So there's a picture there of some Templars getting rather warm. Yeah. That was a pretty uh, nasty thing that Philip IV did there, wasn't it? Because he was powerful enough that people would believe him, or he had agents around that could make up these rumours that then basically spelled the beginning of the end for this really powerful military and religious group in Europe. And uh, it worked, though. I don't think he has to pay his debts back. <laughs> what, just kill everybody and then then you don't actually have to give them anything exactly yeah just take it from them instead see even though they're really powerful being a king gives you a kind of an extra special power particularly kind of an absolute monarchy so whilst the templars are certainly powerful the event itself is quite obscure so it seems unlikely that this would be the origin for um the distrust or bad luck of the number 13 yeah because i i hear loads of things about friday 13th stuff Mm-hmm. But I never knew where it was actually from, and now I do. Well, maybe, yeah, there's lots of theories, so it could be one of them. You definitely see it in, say, in France. Do you remember when we did your awesome Mayan feature um, that they supposedly predicted the end of the world in 2012? Yeah. Yeah, on December the 21st. Well, that date was the beginning of the 13th Bacton, which is a measurement of time containing 144,000 days. That was meant to start the beginning of a bad spell for mankind. So you could see that maybe 13 in Mayan cultures yeah. could have some bad associations. Mm-hmm. But as far as I can tell, the world didn't end back then. Mm, 
Am I here? Yeah. I think you're here. Am I here? Can you see me? Ow. Yeah, definitely here. Seize your fist. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Right, let's go back even further in time, shall we, to ancient Babylon. Now, do you know where Babylon is? No. You don't know? Should, but no. Any guesses? South America. No, it wasn't. Okay, so Babylon was in Iraq. It's actually basically situated where Baghdad is today. And I think people tend to forget, particularly when you look at the news and you see the sorry state that Iraq's in now and how I know people in the West probably don't have a good image of Iraq. Mm-hmm. It's got an amazing and rich cultural history. And I think it's really important to remember that, isn't it? Yeah. Today there's still just people like you and me, aren't they? Yeah. Okay, so let's have a look at history from Babylon, shall we? So in around 1754 BCE, the Code of Hammurabi was created, and it consists of laws and punishments that were created by the sixth king of Babylon, Hammurabi, and it's one of the oldest surviving kind of long written texts in the world. It's actually carved onto this stone, and it's pretty beautiful, I think. Yeah. I mean, look at that, it's absolutely covered. At first, when I first glimpsed it, I didn't notice it. That's how small and detailed it is. Yeah, but it's a beautiful carved stone, which has obviously been uh, its thousands of years old and it's kind of been worn down and aged, but you can still see some of the hieroglyphs there. It's been fully translated. It looks a bit like a, um, something you find from a computer game. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah, you can see sort of a fantasy game or something that's inspired people. The laws that are written on this stone are actually quite cool in a way, or interesting, different to what we have today. Um, and they're very much what we say is an eye for an eye. So here's an example. If a man destroy the eye of another man, they shall destroy his eye. If one break a man's bone, they shall break his bone. If one destroy the eye of a freeman, or break the bone of a freeman, he shall pay one gold mina. If one destroy the eye of a man's slave, or break the bone of a man's slave, he shall pay one half his price. Quite brutal laws, weren't they? Yeah. It's kind of, uh, if I punch you like that, you have to punch me back. Ow, that's harder. So I have to punch you hard. That's harder. Ah! Okay, right, let's not carry out these laws, shall we? <laughs> let's try and be uh, more modern in our legal system. <laughs> but it's also pretty harsh to slaves, wasn't it? If you were um, a regular person in society, the punishment was even. But if it was a slave who got hurt, so you just pay half their price. So it really shows how devalued or undervalued kind of human life can be. Yeah. But where this ties into the story of the number 13 is it said that the 13th law was omitted from the text on the stone uh, because it was kind of so evil or unlucky. Mm-hmm. However, the laws on the stone, they're not actually numbered, and this is just a myth, uh, because there's one of the translations, uh, they accidentally forgot one of the laws, so maybe they were just unlucky that day. <laughs> yeah. So how do you feel about the number 13 now? Um... A bit better. A bit better, yeah. Did you think it had kind of strange powers before? Um, no. Do you think that maybe Halloween on October the 31st should really be... October the 30th. Maybe it's because it's so evil you have to look at it in a mirror. (laughs) Yeah. But you'll find kind of this odd fear of 13, you still get it kind of in the real world today in just really innocent places. So earlier I read some quotes about 13 dinner guests at parties in the 1800s being bad luck. And that idea has become even more generalised as time has passed. And here's a quote from a book written in 1893. Look at that, said Parnell, pointing at the number on his door. It was number 13. 
What a room to give me! he exclaimed. And from 1927, For some time before the late war, I went almost daily to the British Museum reading room. I gave some attention to the desks left to the last comers. There's a very marked preference of any other desk than that numbered 13. Today we still see this superstition in many places. So I've got a picture for you here. Now this is from a lift. What do you notice about it? You can have a careful look at the numbers. <laughs> That's funny. 13 doesn't exist in it. Yes, there's no 13th floor in the building. But you can see that causing problems actually for, I know, an architectural firm or something, or some engineers. Um, where they're told that a building has 20 floors, but really it's got 19, so yeah. 13th is missing. And here's one from an aircraft. This actually looks like the planes over here. Uh, <laughs> 13's missing again. One of the, um... Those are the seat numbers, so there's no 13th seat. Maybe they should just sell them cheaper. <laughs> okay, we've had a problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. We've had a main beam on Thunderbolt. Roger, main B intervolt. Okay, stand by, 13, we're looking at it. Okay, uh, right now, uh, Houston, the uh, voltage is, uh, is looking good. Uh, and we had a, a pretty large bang associated with the uh, caution and warning there. And as I recall, main B was the one that... Now, imagine uh, you are far from home on a spaceship, mm -hmm. traveling to the moon, and you have a malfunction. Oh. That's what happened with Apollo 13. And that clip was a small recording from when they radioed back to Mission Control to say that they were having issues, which is shortly after they'd actually done a live television broadcast from space, from the spaceship. And that was actually recorded 50 years ago to the day. <gasps> so do you know anything about the Apollo missions? Um trying to get to the moon, trying to put a man on the moon. Exactly, yeah, so that had already happened with Apollo 11. Yeah. So on April the 11th, 1970, astronauts took off on a mission to the moon, but on the night of Friday the 13th, slash Saturday the 14th, during um, approach to our nearest neighbour, and more than 330,000 kilometres from home, there was an explosion on their pod, okay, on their spaceship, and that crippled the spacecraft and there was no way that anybody could be sent there to help them. So here's an actual photo of the pod here, and you can see the damage on the side. Oh yeah, it, it looks surprisingly neat actually, the damage on that. Now the explosion caused problems with the ship's power systems and life support, uh, so that meant that teams of engineers and scientists on the ground, they worked with the astronauts to form an emergency plan of how they could do to rescue them. So they actually had to do really complicated calculations to work out new flight paths and trajectories and things to try and find out, okay, how can we get them home? And that's all using uh, computers that were like, less powerful than this phone to do at the time, or they had to do calculations by hand. So it's pretty amazing. Then they also had to communicate all of that back up to the astronauts who were stuck up in space. Yeah. So here's a diagram of the approach that they were going to take. So basically the plan was when you go to the moon, you take off from the Earth, then you fly up and then you, they would swing around the back of the moon. Mm -hmm. uh, they'd probably drop off the lander. I don't know if they did a few orbits. And then they would come back to Earth. Now there was a point during their journey where they're saying if anything went wrong, I think it was about a third of the way to the moon, they would still be able to turn back and come home mm -hmm. so they could abort the mission. They'd actually gone too far for this. So it's 55 hours into the mission that they had a problem that the explosion happened, and by that time it was too late for them really to get back to Earth because they had lost um, 
some of their fuel cells and things. So they had to decide what to do. And the decision was taken that they would continue flying to the moon. And they could use the gravity of the moon to go around it and slingshot their way back to Earth. I mean, how do you even calculate something like that? <laughs> and do it when you, you can't afford any mistakes because they didn't have much fuel left, which meant that um, they could only use the engines probably for a few minutes at a time just to do slight corrections to their course. Yeah. Um, and as a lot of the systems weren't working, they then had to uh, kind of navigate using the stars, like you would have maybe ships at sea would have done a few hundred years ago. But because of the debris from the spacecraft around them, all sparkling in the sun's rays, they couldn't tell if it was a star or not. Yeah. So they had to kind of navigate using the sun a little bit. So that's like the one fixed star where they could see where it was. <laughs> mm-hmm. But then the problems continued to get worse uh, because there was limited oxygen available to them um, and also water and things because the they had hydrogen fuel cells. They give off um, water as one of the uh, like waste products when they're used. So that's what they use for drinking and also to help keep everything cool. Because when you're coming in back to Earth, it gets very, very hot. And another problem was because what do you breathe out? What gas? Carbon dioxide. Yeah. So if you're on a spacecraft, does that go? Just, just around you, eh? Yeah. Uh, so you have special filters there which collect the carbon dioxide. But unfortunately, because there's different modules in the spacecraft, as you can see here, so there's like the lander and there's like a command module and things. Mm-hmm. Um, they had different filters in each one. And the filters that they had in the module that they had to return to Earth in, they, were, they wouldn't hold enough carbon dioxide. So the engineers actually had to work with the astronauts to take the filters from the other module yeah. and get them to work inside the command module. Uh, so they had to like pull off panelling, I think, and all sorts, and get like sheets of plastic and basically wire it all together and stick it all together <laughs> with, with duct tape, literally. But luckily, they managed to get filters working, but they were still concerned that they wouldn't be able to make it back in time or they'd run out of water. So they really rationed how much they were drinking, mm-hmm. and they were looking at how they were going to re-enter the atmosphere because they actually had to separate the modules, mm-hmm. um, which meant they wouldn't have their heat shield. And they were also concerned that the modules would be too close together. Yeah. So they actually had to use some of the air inside and jettison that out. So it worked as a little kind of air thruster to would, push the modules if, apart. If, yeah, if the modules got too close um, together, would it be smashing? Would it be like um, magnets? They're sort of getting. They'd probably be very slow coming together, I think, there. If they're just separated, then they'll just drift quite gently apart. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> But I'm not actually totally sure, to be honest. But then they had to try and line themselves up for re-entry. And normally, I think it takes about four minutes to re-enter. But because they had no heat shield, they had to come in more shallowly so that they wouldn't get so hot. Mm -hmm. And without all their equipment, they actually had to use the line of uh, like day and night, like the shadow, uh, as their marker to try and line up where they had to come in. Mm -hmm. Um, But they also had, I think it's some uranium on board, so it's radioactive. So they had to be careful where they dropped that as well when they separated, I think that was. But that fell into the middle of the Pacific Ocean. But then at first they were lined up to fall into the Indian Ocean, like the astronauts themselves. Yeah. Um, But they managed to fire the thrusters for about a minute or something and just realign a tiny bit. And then they came in through the atmosphere and then they lost contact, or rather the ground lost contact with them for over a minute, I think it was. So they actually thought they'd burnt up. Yeah. And they'd, they'd all kind of died. Uh, but then they came back into contact and landed in the Pacific Ocean. Now, how far away do you, from the support ship do you think they landed? Um, I'm, I'm, 
It's either really, really far away or very, very close. Yeah, just six and a half kilometres away. <laughs> Which is amazing, yeah. isn't it? To think all, everything they went through and they somehow managed to land safe place. And this is all done by some remarkable astronauts. Uh, so there's James Lovell, uh, John Spigat and Fred Hayes. And of course the ground control and all the amazing kind of engineers yeah. and scientists. And I don't get how you can do those calculations as well. It's yeah. really confusing. And not panicking. But all of these guys, they were former um, test pilots. So they were used to working in high pressure. Yeah. But you also have to be, like, incredibly intelligent as well. Yeah. <laughs> I think my brain would melt. So that's uh, pretty amazing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So do you think it's wise to launch Apollo 13 on a mission that would take place over the course of Friday the 13th? 13th yeah. <laughs> um, maybe that's why it failed a bit. <laughs> yeah, so do you think it's bad luck? <laughs> mm. I actually think they're probably jolly lucky to have such amazing people. So is 13 really an unlucky number? Um, I don't see why it is. I think just people think it is. Yeah, so, uh, no! <laughs> According to Igor Randon, of the Human Factors and Safety Behaviour Group at the University of Helsinki Institute of Behavioural Sciences in Finland, no data exists or whatever exists to confirm that the number 13 is an unlucky number. There is no reason to believe that any number in the world be lucky or unlucky. But that being said, I believe if people believe strongly enough in 13 being unlucky, it's probably going to start affecting their behaviour, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So a study showed that less people drove on the M25 motorway on Friday the 13th <laughs> than um, kind of a Friday earlier in the month. I think, um, I've got an idea. Mm-hmm. It, when you're walking on your 13th um, step, you have to skip, like skipping the 13th. You'd have to hop then, wouldn't you? Because yeah. you'd have to land back on the flip that just on the 12th step. <laughs> yeah. Good work. Maybe we'll try that. Mm-hmm. So people with the fear of the number 13, will they be more cautious and try and uh, avoid anything containing the number 13? One study says that women are more likely to have accidents on Friday the 13th. Probably because they're worried. And then if you get worried, your your head's feet uh, would be different and then you're anxious, so you're sort of shaky. If you're driving a car, you're crash. Yeah. Um, But then another study have found this not to be true. As Igor Randon says... There are no lucky or unlucky numbers. They exist only in our heads, or in the heads of some of us, and they might become lucky or unlucky, only if we make them as such. Well, it's 13 always seen as unlucky? Um, in some cultures, I don't think it will be. Yeah, that's right, I've got a few here. So no, it's not always seen as unlucky. <clears throat> it's in Italy, where they see 17 as unlucky. Uh, number 13 is seen as a very lucky number, particularly when gambling. Although it seems that that tradition is dying out, um, and I'm not actually sure how common it ever was, but as um, like American culture and things is infiltrating or influencing Italian culture, those traditions are coming over, so Lucky 13 is dying out there. <clears throat> and in China, it's also Lucky. And when pronounced in Mandarin, 13 sounds like Shisan, and that means definitely vibrant. <laughs> That's nice. Yeah, it's nice, isn't it? Then also Hindus believe that the 13th day of every month is auspicious and it's called Treyadashi and it's dedicated to the Lord Shiva and he's one of their principal deities or gods, isn't he? It's like the many-armed gods. I think he's blue normally. 
Yeah. Just not in that statue. And if you pray to him on that day, you'll be blessed with wealth and happiness and children. So I guess two out of three things isn't bad, is it? <laughs> Excuse me. I love you, really. So you sort of come to the conclusion that 13 probably isn't an unlucky number, really, haven't you? I think. Yeah. It's more down to what people believe. But I don't think you'll be so sure about that in a moment. Yeah. So with all of this said, which ball do you think was found to have been least drawn by the National Lottery? 13. Yeah, exactly, 13. So maybe it is unlucky after all. Hmm. Okay, so that's a wrap. Yeah, this is the real ending now. Yes, it is the real ending. Yep. No more technical problems, hopefully. <laughs> Assuming this recorded, touch wood. There's some wood. Floor. Speaking of superstitions. Where's a ladder? We need to walk under a ladder so we're unlucky. No, no, no. We need good luck. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, so um, don't forget that we are on Twitter at CurieChildPod. We are also on Podchaser, where please leave a review, or on Apple iTunes. Mm -hmm. And you can also find us in all the regular places like um, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Stitcher. So please subscribe, please review, please say something nice or send us a message on Twitter. And uh, just tell us what you think. And please um, mention the podcast to all the limited friends that you can see at the moment. Yes, just shout it out of your window, actually, because I'm (laughs) sure your neighbours are missing seeing or hearing you. So shout out your window to them and let's get the nation listening. Yeah. No, the world listening. So thank you very much. Goodbye. Bye. See you soon. Hot. I think it's because I'm actually having fun on night school. <clears throat> yeah, yeah.